and welcome to Tipping the Balance. I'm Katie Hickey, your host, and today we hear from Anna Lyons and Louise Winter. Anna is an end-of-life doula and Louise is a progressive funeral director. Together, they are life, death, whatever. Their mission is to redesign the dialogue around death and dying and to make these conversations part of the mainstream. As I explained at the start of the interview, I found the topic of death and dying quite difficult and I recognised that it was a fear of mine. Once I discovered Anna and Louise and read about their work and their approach, I started to become more interested and felt more able to think and talk about the subject. It started to bring into sharper focus the fragility of our life and has spurred me to try and live life as fully as I can. They have a new book called We All Know How This Ends out on March 18th and throughout the interview we discuss the book and I reflect on the emotions that it brought up for me and what I learned by reading it. The conversation is open and honest and I don't think I have read any other book that will have taught me as much as this one. I know there may be many people who have lost a loved one recently or are caring for a loved one who's unwell so please take care of yourself whilst listening. Thank you, Anna and Louise, for uh, being guests on the podcast. Um, When I had an idea to start a podcast, it was sometime last year, I made a wish list of people that I really wanted to interview. And you guys were on my initial kind of wish list for for people that I wanted to talk to. (laughs) And when I sent the email, I think it was before Christmas and I didn't hear back. I thought, of course, you know, they're going to be so busy and we'll never hear back. And then I got the email from your uh, publisher and I thought, oh my goodness, I got so excited. So thank you so much for um, for making the time today. It really means a lot to me. And actually, I was just frantically reading, finishing the rest of your your book. Um, God, I about two hours before we started this call, I was literally in floods of tears and saying to my husband, "Oh my God, I'm going to be so bad at this interview because I'll be crying my eyes out." Oh but um, but no, I'm feeling much better now. <laughs> it's think- really wonderful. Can I just say? It's- really wonderful to hear that you're excited to be having a conversation about death and dying because that's not the um, response we get from everyone yeah no I, I, I'm sure and it's something I think my husband I can't remember how long ago it was he said to me I, th- I said oh, I think I've I think I've got a bit of a fear of dying and he said yeah you know like no shit I think uh, <laughs> I think I think you should probably talk to someone about it and I thought oh okay that that sounds like he thinks that I've got like quite a problem about it uh and and I I think I do or did and so you know finding particularly um reading that the list the mother of all lists uh, Anna that you wrote for for Clemmie Telford I know that was quite a while ago now but Mm -hmm. that really um opened up my my mind and my eyes to thinking about death differently Uh, and I think because I grew up in a family where like my nan for example when she died of cancer and she was she died quite slowly we were never allowed to mention cancer she would never say that she had cancer so it was always this 
secret in a way um so I think I get quite emotional thinking about anybody dying even if I don't know them I would get quite Mm -hmm. emotional and certainly reading your book I couldn't get more than 20 pages in before I was just really (laughs) full-on crying (laughs) I'm sorry that we distressed you (laughs) no but but do you know what I think because somewhere in the book it says something about um when you start having these conversations about death and dying and grief it can uncover your kind of underlying emotional state or I'm not quoting it exactly but it's something along those lines there's something about that in the book and I I did pause and think hmm what does this say about my uh, my underlying emotional state <laughs> am, am I deeply un- unstable which I don't think I don't think I am but um yeah I I thought that your book was of course yes it was confronting but it was equally comforting because it made me think about things that I would otherwise never have thought about on and uh, read about things that yeah never crossed my mind so it's I know it's going to help so many people um when when your book comes out um but I thought maybe as a as a starting point would you like to just kind of introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about what you do and for anyone who may not have heard of you. So I'm Anna and um, I work as an end-of-life doula and that means that I support people who are living with life-limiting illness. Um, I support their friends and their family and I do a lot of grief work after somebody's died. Yeah I actually messaged one of my friends today and said that I was interviewing um a death doula and a funeral director and she said a death a death doula what I never she'd never heard of it before um lots of of people haven't yeah so (laughs) So lots of people are quite fascinated by it because of course they've all heard of birth doulas you know birth doulas are kind of almost mainstream now aren't they Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Louise do you want to just say a little bit about you and what you do So my name's Louise, I'm a funeral director. I'm also the founder of a modern funeral company in London called Poetic Endings. Um, So I work with people who have died and their families and friends and try to arrange a funeral which hopefully serves everyone's needs. So I believe that good funerals are really important and that the way we behave at the funeral and our approach to it really, really matters. And together, we're the team behind Life, Death, Whatever. So we work independently, but we also work together um, to help people have difficult conversations about death, to share lots of people's experiences. We have a whole community of people who have either been through really difficult things or are just intrigued about how to have these difficult conversations. Um, And we share lots of their stories, insights and experience as well as our own. Now, I was thinking kind of before we dive into some of the kind of more nitty gritty um, conversation. One one question I had as a kind of starting point was about uh, coffin ball pits. I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about <laughs> about that just as a way to ease into uh, to the conversations. I think I'm the only person potentially in the world who has three coffin ball pits in their attic. Bespoke ones as well. They're quite <laughs> nice. Um, we we created a month long festival at Sutton House in Hackney, um, and the idea was to sort of create an all encompassing 
immersive experience that helped open up the conversation and one of the ways that we did that was by using art and you walked in through birth and it sort of the exhibition took you through life cycles and all sorts of wonderful things and we wanted to find a way to sort of I don't know make make the subject more accessible and to open it up and we try to do everything that we do really beautifully. Um, and it also felt like there was a place within it, sort of within the context of all of the other sort of very heartfelt, very difficult, um, very beautiful, to have a little bit of fun and a little bit of irreverence and also something that maybe children could access just to try to remove a bit of the fear from it. Really amazing to see when it was in place. Um, Sutton House is a Tudor house. It's quite an eclectic Tudor house. It's had lots of additions over the years. And the idea was that people could come in and engage with the death exhibition as much or as little as they want. So, so some people ignored it completely and just looked at the Tudor panels on the wall. Um, but other people really embraced it. And it was so brilliant to see children and adults running into the room and diving headfirst into the coffin ball pits. We spent a lot of time picking up balls and having to throw them back into the coffins. <laughs> and I don't think we have those um, coffins anymore. They were cardboard coffins and they were really quite trashed <laughs> by the end of it. All the people that had been throwing themselves in and no numerous house keys and rings that got lost, <laughs> lost in there. But it was just there to prove to people that it doesn't have to be so alienating. Coffins aren't this sort of mysterious thing that you can only look at at the funeral directors in the brochure. Um, death is something that we can engage with as part of normal everyday existence yeah absolutely and I think that that's why um, it's so important and the big part of the reason that I wanted to have you both on the podcast is because you know the focus of my podcast is mental health and I have just found as I've gotten older that I've given quite a lot of thought to the decisions that I make or the life that I live and you know you have these questions about your identity and if you're living a a, a full life um and I think somewhere in the book it says about you know life isn't just about surviving now it's it's about thriving um and so the thought often does cross my mind you know what am I going to think about this when I'm on my deathbed or I know that I'm kind of towards the end of my life how how will I reflect on on this situation or what will I be glad that I've done um and I think that that is for me anyway it seems like the one of the most important reasons to to have these conversations and and understand that life is fragile and um you know life's short and you only get one life so to try and live as full a life as possible and interesting what you said about having children and bringing them in because I, I know as well that did get a mixed reaction from some people um, seeing mm -hmm. the, the exhibition and uh, I was having a joke with my husband about when he was a child he had a pet cockatiel um, and it was it was called Flapper because he never had any other pets uh, and I love animals and I said you know you had a cockatiel that seemed like an odd choice of a pet and he said yeah but one day you know mum said that he had a he was getting so anxious in his cage that she just let him out and and he flew away and um <laughs> it dawned on me that maybe that was a way of saying you know oh so and so's gone oh, to yeah. live on <laughs> yeah gone to live on the farm yeah flapper had died but 
you know, my husband's 36 and it he'd never it never dawned on him that poor flapper <laughs> might have died. And I and he <laughs> even when I said to him, Come on, darling, do you really think that Flapper flew away? Or do you think that Flapper <laughs> died? And he's he was like, oh, No, Mum, Mum would never have lied to me about that. Not Flapper. <laughs> um, Did he ask her if she had? No, he hasn't. No. <laughs> She's in the house now, so maybe I could ask her after I think this. you should. I think it would be. <laughs> it just ties in with with um, communication about grief. And it seems, I think, part of the reason I found it so difficult at times to read your book is it's just a reflection of our society and our culture that we don't talk about these things enough. How did you tell your children that their great-grandmother had died? We just told, uh, we told my my daughter she's four and a half um I said that that she was in hospital and she wasn't very well and that she was probably going to die Mm -hmm. and then when she did die I just said you know I I said that um she's Polish so prababcha is great grandma I said prababcha died and she just you know she said oh okay you know she's dead (laughs) um And that was, you know, that was kind of it. But then we've been telling her we're going to the funeral. And she said, what's a funeral? Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, a funeral is when we um, celebrate someone's life and say goodbye to them. And so then she just thought that we were going to a party. Um, And so continued talking about a party, (laughs) the funeral party that we were going to. (laughs) So, yeah, what do you think about the way as a mainstream society that we deal with with grief and die death and dying I mean obviously that's something important to both of you otherwise you wouldn't be in the job that you that you do what do you think are the kind of main pitfalls of that so we just don't really deal with it and then I think we leave it until the point when we have to by which point it's all a bit of a shock and we make decisions which might not necessarily be the best decisions for us. We don't necessarily have all the information at hand. We don't know what could be the best experiences for us if we just deal with it as and when we're faced with it. And I think I notice it a lot with funerals, with people who have never spoken about it, never had those difficult conversations with the people around them. And then when it comes to the funeral, are really shocked and find it really, really impossible and don't know the options that are out there. Um, And specifically around funerals, there has been a whole industry which has popped up to take advantage of that, Mm. of people's vulnerability and really, not not everyone, but lots of funeral directors who have not been transparent about how things are, how much things cost and have really exploited bereaved people. Um, So part of why I do this work is to help people to have these conversations in advance so that when it does happen to them, when they are faced with the death of someone um, close to them, they can have a more empowered experience and choose the thing, actively choose the things that they want and know will benefit them rather than just being told what they need to do um, and potentially doing something which actually isn't in their best interests. Mm, yeah, absolutely. That was something I found really interesting, you know, reading about. And I, and I did feel as though people yeah fall into a trap when they're planning funerals because like you say they don't know any better um and um I mean I don't know exactly you know the range of prices of of funerals but um you know just knowing actually that it's not formulaic as you might expect it to be if you don't know 
about funerals um and actually that you've got so much choice um but I guess the majority of people just don't know that they have all of these choices available to them. And, and I think we live in a society now where we don't really have any particular faith or rituals or traditions. All of that has all become very free. It's not like in other communities around the world where there is a set of established rituals that people go through when they're facing death and dying. And so people know what to say. They might have a joint faith or there's just more of a joint set of societal rituals which people go through and we don't have that so much here um, and in some ways that makes it more difficult because people don't know what to do and they don't know what to say and we we don't have a common framework for dealing with things but on the other hand it's really freeing because it means that we're not tied to any rituals or traditions which might not feel relevant to us and what we can do if we're feeling brave is go back to square one and just decide what do we need to do in this situation? What are the rituals and things that we can put in place to guide us through this um, situation in the best possible way? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, hearing your journey, Louise, into how you became um, a funeral director and about the the beginnings of poetic endings, I, I really enjoyed learning about that. And I um, and the story that you shared about your grandfather's funeral, um, and I and what struck me actually was the the Britishness of of the, that situation, um, where um, sausage rolls and a free bar, <laughs> sausage rolls exactly. That's it. I think you said um, stuffing down grief grief with sausage rolls, and I really laughed when I when I read that because I just thought. God, you just couldn't get more British, really, to to than anything else. That is really just sums it up. Um, and I have said so many times to my husband, I said, if whenever I die and I have a funeral, I do not want sausage rolls at my funeral. I want to have, <laughs> I want the best food. That is like the big thing for me. I just want there to be like really good food that people will really enjoy eating. Like why, why is funeral food stereotypically just so crap? I mean, it's really usually like exactly that, just sausage rolls or cheese sandwiches. Um, I know, why is that? very good question and I think it taps into how conservative people can be when faced with death and arranging a funeral and they can go back to things that feel very safe and very familiar and for some people that is the sort of stale cheese sandwiches and the sausage rolls there's something reassuringly comforting knowing that at the end of the funeral there'll be you know a free bar and the sausage rolls um but it doesn't work for everyone and and actually I do think we need more options and to create situations where everyone can come together in a meaningful way that is an honest reflection of the person that has died. Um, and I know for my granddad that actually the sausage rolls and the stale cheese sandwiches, the very beige buffet we were faced with did work really well. He would have really loved that, but it definitely wouldn't work for my funeral or mm. for some of my friends and other members of the family. Um, something, uh, you know, a bit more modern and maybe a bit more vegetarian and vegan, mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> vegan accommodating. <laughs> Um, and another thing that really um, stuck in my mind about your work as a, a funeral director is that you're on call 24 hours a day or that that bodies do need collecting 24 hours a day. And, and for me, I just 
I didn't understand why that was um why it was that when someone dies they need I know they don't need to be collected but there's this the service has to be available of immediate collection of dead bodies why is that it's tapping into society and culture's fear around death even when it's an expected death many people will will treat it like it's an emergency and call 999 um sometimes it has to be treated like an emergency. Sometimes a coroner needs to be involved and the police need to come along. Um, but I think it would be good for Anna to talk about this as well. Um, when people call us at three in the morning and say, oh my gosh, my wife has died, she had cancer and can you come and collect her now? We always try and get in touch with whether that's actually the right thing to do. And we'll say, well, we don't actually have to come now. This is not an emergency. You can have some time with her. You might want to, you know, sit down, play some music, light some candles, um, have a cup of tea, have the family over, you know, say goodbyes, have this time with her now. It doesn't need to be that the funeral directors come straight away. Um, But most people think that funeral directors have to be called straight away and will come out with the private ambulance. And it's just not the case. Mm -hmm. And some of the most special situations, and I think the most healing have been when people have just sat with the body of the person that has died for as long as they feel that it's right to do so and you know sometimes gently bathe them with lavender water or played their favorite music or um you know had the family around and cooked a full english breakfast together and all sat around and shared stories whilst the person is in their bedroom just lying on their bed dead and not being so afraid of it so but people don't know this information and unless they're empowered with it, it's very difficult to do anything other than call the funeral directors straight away and have them come out as soon as possible. Mm, yeah, no, I, I, I can imagine that. And, and I think as well, if it ties into this about our society and culture and um, this sort of level of taboo of having a dead body in your house and people feeling kind of quite uncomfortable about that Um, I can imagine that a lot of people might not like it. It's usually the first time somebody has seen someone who's died and that can be quite confronting if they don't know what to expect Um, you know people make decisions about wanting to be at home to die and then actually when when people begin the dying process um, it can be quite shocking if they you know don't know what to expect or if they haven't got somebody there who can say no this is really normal and so I think it's just this idea that what do we do now and people don't really know they don't they don't really know and there's a discomfort in having someone who's died in your home or you know wherever you are yeah yeah and I think maybe as well that's a a a reaction to the unknown if they feel as though they know there's a step they can take of an action so calling the funeral director that makes them feel purposeful and and I think a lot of people don't know that it's okay to keep someone at home for a bit. They they think they must call somebody. They need to let people know immediately that this has happened. And then I think there's this sort of expectation of what you should do. And one of the things that we were hoping to do with the book was just debunk all of those myths. Because you don't you don't have to. People can stay with you. Um, You know, as Louise said, there are occasions where you absolutely do need to set things in motion, but more often than not, 
you know, it's absolutely fine. And taking your time can be really, really healing and cathartic. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess when you work with families um, as a death doula, that is the the benefit of, of them working with you, you know, in the lead up is that you can inform them of, of all of these things and kind of make them feel better prepared. A lot of it is letting people know that what is happening is normal mm-hmm. because, you know, a, a bit like giving birth, if you've never done it before, you don't know what's normal and what isn't normal. And you've got people there to say, no, this is okay. And actually it's just, it's having a bit of reassurance that what's happening is okay. Mm. Yeah, I found it somewhat surprising and I guess a, a little bit scary the the number of parallels between uh, giving birth and preparing for that and preparing for, for death. Um, so even the bit around um, making kind of a plan, you know, you, you talk about where you might like to be and the lighting the people that you'd have around you um if you would like you know maybe food or the smells and sounds and if you would like someone to be you know touching you or or not touching you and I just thought um wow that is so familiar because it's something that I talk to people about you know in preparing them to have a baby and I had never ever considered that for end of life um i guess you know it's and as with having a baby those plans tend to go out of the window but it's very reassuring to make them and it's very reassuring to sit and think about what you would like and know that there would be access to it Mm -hmm. um and it's about comfort in the unknown you know a little bit of normal a little bit of something that you recognize that smells familiar or feels familiar when you're going through something that you've never been through before and in terms of kind of the practicalities of being a death doula I mean how many families might you kind of work with at one time not that many (laughs) so when I worked for the NHS um, I had a huge caseload and you can't possibly do that working sort of one-to-one as an end-of-life doula. It's, it's just not possible. And one of the reasons that I wanted to do it is that you can immerse yourself in one family or two families at a time rather than, you know, take on a huge amount. But also working with people who are dying all the time takes a toll. Um, and so it felt really important to carry on doing my job really well. And I think one of the ways that I've managed that is to just take on a few people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that was actually a question that I had for both of you is because, you know, the focus of my podcast is about mental health and, and well-being. I really wanted to hear from both of you how you do look after yourselves given you know you're, you're both in extremely uh, emotional giving roles where you spend you know a lot of time with people who are going to be very upset um and you've also had your both of you have had your own challenges in your in your lives so um I don't know Anna maybe do you want to go first just thinking about how how you look after yourself I think you know it's a cliche but 
that's because it's true that you can't pour from an empty cup and you have to look after yourself. You have to be in a good place and sort of well nurtured in order to be able to help people through. Um, so I have regular supervision. That's absolutely essential. I couldn't do my job without it. And I make sure that I say no. <laughs> I refer people to other people who I know are better. I, when I was younger, I used to take on much too much and I don't do that anymore. I try to be a bit more balanced. You know, obviously we always take on too much. Um, and it's impossible sometimes to say no, especially with a lot of the stories that we hear. Um, but also we can't do the work that we do well if we're completely overwrought. So it's really, really important to sort of, you know, find a degree of balance. And I know in the book you refer to, you know, your own health and um, the insights, you know, with the, the problems that you've had with your health and the insight that that's given you um, to being a patient. Would you be able to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I, I had never, ever been a patient before. I had worked with patients <laughs> my, you know, my entire career, but I'd never actually been one. And it was fascinating and awful <laughs> all at the same time. But I remember reading about Dr. Kate Granger. She was diagnosed with cancer um, and she started the campaign, Hello, My Name Is because she realized you know having been a doctor and then a patient she realized that a lot of doctors treat you as a case as opposed to a human and don't even introduce themselves and so she created this incredible campaign to get people to say who they were and to actually sit down and speak to the patient as a human being um, and that really, really struck me when I was unwell, how all of the things really that I'd done wrong in my career sort of came and, I guess, you know, hit me in the face. And you realise what it's like to be vulnerable, what it's like to be unwell, what it's like to not know if you're going to get better. Um, and yeah, it's really, really eye opening. It's certainly not something I would have chosen to have had happen um but it's definitely made me much better at my job it's all of these experiences that um yeah give you a little little bit of insight into how people feel when you know when they're in that situation yeah, and I think you know before you can say to we always say please don't say you understand what someone's going through because you don't you don't understand even if you've been through something similar um, but I genuinely know what it's like to be a patient now. And I think that has probably been the greatest teacher for me in all of this. Yeah. And I think what struck me about your story, and again, it's opened up the conversations in, in my house, is that um, it wasn't it happened just out of the blue for you that one day, you know, you were preparing for your, your children's birthday parties and then you collapsed and it was, it was incredibly serious. So it was really shocking. And actually it's the anniversary on Monday. Oh. Um, and so, you know, and I'm still having treatment and it's still something that affects me every day, but it did 
it came completely out of nowhere and they said there was really nothing I could have done to prevent it. So it does make you really truly understand how precious life is and how quickly it can all be taken away. And I'm even working at end of life for so many years before that, I'm not sure that I, I really grasped the sort of, the tenuous nature of mortality until that happened. Mm. Yeah, and I, I can't possibly understand <laughs> what that's like because yeah, I mean, that's, that has never happened to me, but, it, but what I did take from that is that um, having conversations about all of these things in, um, in times of good health is important because it, it's not always the case that you get a diagnosis and have time, even if it is only a couple of weeks. <laughs> I mean, sometimes things just happen and you're not expecting it. But even, even when people get a diagnosis, you know, they don't necessarily have those conversations or feel able to have them, you know, yeah it's not just because you're given time doesn't mean that you you are able to do the things that you think you'll do you know I think I had a very clear idea of what I thought I would do and it was absolutely not like that at all <laughs> not at all also I hadn't had I'd had some conversations but I hadn't had a lot of conversations about what I wanted. And I found myself in a position where I couldn't articulate what I wanted. And I felt like fraud, if I'm really honest, I was furious with myself for not having written things down more clearly or, but I just, you know, I think it's the arrogance of youth as well. You know, you just don't imagine that this is gonna happen to you. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Louise, I know um, when you when you tell the story of your grandfather's funeral, and you say that you've you felt you felt dis distressed before, um, and you list kind of a, a, a number of events or periods in your life that you'd been through, um, which did strike me because you were only twenty six when you were at your granddad's funeral, and I thought, wow, that gave me a bit of an insight into the fact that you had you know been through quite a lot at a young age um you know how do you how do you take care of yourself or how how have your life experiences um impacted on how you look after yourself now um so I think my early 20s were a bit of a write-off <laughs> um I it was not a good time and I think I spent my early 20s just messing everything up and then my late 20s recovering from that and then only life really felt like it started in my 30s I'm 34 now I have a really intense job I run a business that demands my attention 24-7 um, and I think what I've learned most of all is to remember to have fun it's really hard to do that now I think the biggest thing I can do for myself is to put my work phone down, to stop answering emails, to stop updating the website or doing whatever it is and just go and have some fun. And it's been really challenging throughout the pandemic because all of the things that I would normally do, whether it's going out for meals with friends or um, going indoor climbing was the thing I got really into at one point, just setting aside, setting aside time for things that I enjoy has not been possible. And it's just been relentlessly having to work and work and work 
and what and then even when you think it's all over the phone rings again and um I have to keep doing it so there are things that I know really help having a routine making sure I have food in the fridge having a delivery every week really helps um because I know that I act out with food if I'm really stressed so having good high quality vegetables and lovely things um, prepared really helps. Um, I live with a friend of mine and we have a cooking schedule. So we take it in turns to cook um, six nights a week, which makes such a difference because if I was left to just do it for myself, I probably wouldn't cook a really good meal. Whereas when I'm cooking for both of us, I make the effort to do it properly. Um, and just making sure that I reach out to people and talk about what's going on. I have a really brilliant team and we're really, really open with each other and we talk everything through and we know each other's triggers. So for example, just now a funeral came through, someone called and one of my colleagues found the situation really triggering and has asked if someone else could um, take that um, and do uh, and manage it because she doesn't feel like She's got the capacity to be dealing with her current workload, plus a highly triggering personal situation where she has to be really professional and not let anyone know that it's really affecting her personally. So we just have all of this stuff in place to be able to do this work. But there's something in what Anna said as well about the power of saying no. And I have learned not to say yes to every situation, to every single person that calls and asks for help. Um, if I'm not looking after myself and the rest of the team aren't looking after each other and themselves as well, we can't help everyone and actually we'll end up in a really um, tricky position. Um, but COVID has changed all of it and it's made it really, really challenging to, to work throughout this year with very little fun, very little hope, very little to look forward to. Um, and the chances of it being over just being taken away and put into some distant, distant future every um, single day. Mm. So it's been really tricky. In fact, Facebook memories, I'm going to have to switch them off because this time last year, oh. I took my first proper holiday um, since I started working in funerals and went to South Africa to see some friends who live there. And every day, Facebook memories keep sending through these incredible pictures of what I was doing this time last year when COVID existed, but it wasn't what it is now. And I was free to walk up table map well get the cable car up table mountain and try all this amazing food and do and we went horse riding and we went on safari and did all these incredible things and it just seems like this distant memory of when life was free and we could do things and enjoy ourselves and um and now I think it's about surviving and getting through it until one day maybe it will be over mm, yeah it's I think it is certainly impacting everybody and I know given that the the role that you do professionally you've been probably under a lot more pressure and um I know you talk about this as well in the book about because the the service that you offer is is very human centered and it's not a conveyor belt of care which does seem like uh well certainly the funerals that I've been to um at crematoriums for example there's always you know a time slot with a timetable outside and it's the next one the next one the next one um so and it's it has impacted the the way that you can work and having to to say no to people to certain things like you know it's not safe to do this at the moment and things like that that must put more emotional pressure on you as well yeah it's really hard when we're so used to trying to work with people to put together the funeral that they want and our stop answer for the last year has been 
I'm so sorry, we just can't do that right now. It's just not safe to do that. Um, and stopping people from doing the things that they have got in touch with needing to do. So whether it's carrying the coffin, touching the coffin, all these really simple things that now more than often, um, most the answer is, I'm really sorry, we, we can't do that. And I think it's hearing the harrowing stories, particularly now in through the second wave after Christmas, when the phone started ringing with the harrowing, awful stories of Christmas Day mixing. And we've been arranging um, the funerals as a result of people mixing on Christmas Day now um, and hearing the most hideous stories and just people's guilt and shame and upset over the situation. Um, it's been really hard on, on the whole team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know it's I've got some friends that work um, in the NHS as uh, one of my friends works as a head of A&E in Brighton and I spoke to her a couple of weeks ago and I think because you can end up living in a bit of a bubble I mean obviously you guys that doesn't really work because you are at the front line as well Um, but for people that aren't it's easy to kind of maybe get complacent or to think oh this is really dragging on but it's when you hear stories of people that are working in in fields where you're directly affected and having to to deal with the direct consequences um, it really is a bit of a wake-up call for 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 those of us who who aren't working on that front line one question that I had for you Louise was uh, you say in the book about good funeral directors versus bad and I know that it is you may feel as though it's gotten you into a bit of hot water and I know you, you share an anecdote of being threatened by someone um, because you're kind of making waves in the in the industry um and even you using the word industry was was frowned upon so can you just tell me a bit about what makes a good funeral director and versus a bad one so there's a whole spectrum of funeral directors out there from the very traditional who really value polished cars and top hats and spend all of their time you know choosing the perfect cleaning cloth that will make their car the shiniest to much more alternative and holistic funeral directors that are all about crystals and incense Um, And then there's lots in the middle as well, um, funeral directors that are quite traditional but have a really modern approach, more modern funeral directors who really appreciate traditional values. So I think a bad funeral director is someone who is completely inflexible, completely not transparent and has an idea of how things should be done. Um, And that's fine if that's what you're looking for. If you, you know, want a very traditional, very sort of stiff funeral, that's absolutely fine. Um, But what tends to happen is that people don't realise there are options and that they do have choices and that they can appoint a different funeral director. They don't have to go to the one that's closest to their home. They can have a look around. They can call a a few people and find out who would really work for them and then get the funeral that they want from that by working with someone who is more in line with their needs. The funeral industry has been under investigation by the government, by the Competition and Markets Authority for the last few years. And they wrote their final report a few months ago, and it was damning um, about standards behind the scenes, about exploitation, overpricing. And I think we've had this whole myth that funeral directors are shielding us from this awful thing called death that we shouldn't engage with. And that's why we have these awful funeral homes with really poor decoration and dusty neck curtains and old plastic flowers in the window because it's this thing that we really shouldn't be engaging with we should step away from it 
And actually now there are lots of new funeral directors that are coming along, and mostly women, I have to say. A few notable exceptions, but it's mostly women that are leading this and women that could be doing something different in a very different industry, but have realised that there is nothing behind those dusty neck curtains that needs to be hidden. And actually, the more that we bring it out into the light and create environments where we can spend time with the dead and do things beautifully and do things in a um, much more all-encompassing way, the, more, the, healthier, the healthier it is. So unless you want one of those really stiff funerals and you want to have a package, then I think the best advice is just to call around, look at some websites, speak to some different people, expect um, the funeral directors that you speak to to be transparent and honest about what's going on. And if they're not prepared to be, if they give you some kind of excuse as to why their prices aren't online and why they can't provide you with a, a quote about how much it's going to cost, then call someone else. You do have choices. When when I was reading um, some of because you go into so many details in the book, um, it's a re- such a, a useful guide. And as you said, I think Anna was saying about debunking things. I mean, it's it's just such a such an eye opener. I did I did start thinking. Oh, I really want to ask you know these sorts of questions, but I wasn't sure if I I, I stopped myself thinking but is that kind of, is that too morbid a question? And then again, I think that's just me falling into that trap. Censoring it or censoring yourself. And I I think that was, we really don't want people to do that. Ask anything, you know, we can always say no, (laughs) we're not going to answer that one. But yeah, it feels really important to be able to ask anything about it. There is no sort of tick box for death and dying. We only really have an idea of what, death and dying looks like if we've never been with someone from the TV and you know it's very often very quick very quiet people shut their eyes and they don't open them again and so what we wanted to do was show the variety of ways that it can happen I mean every death is different there are there are lots of similarities and um, we talk quite a lot about normal dying but everyone's death is different and I think if you know that if you're armed with that information it's it's not quite so shocking mm-hmm. and Anna when when you work with with families because what struck me as well is that you're not just um hired by somebody who is unwell somebody like a group of friends I think was one of the examples that you gave and I thought that was so lovely actually um and I thought, oh, I would definitely yeah, use that as a, as a resource, as a skill, which I would never have thought about before. So you, you aren't just employed by people who are unwell. It's, it's often their support network that you were there mm-hmm. for them as well. I mean, because I think so little is known about death doulas. Do you, could you just maybe go over so people have a better understanding, you know, what you some of the most common kind of scenarios that you might be asked to work with people? I'm, in all these years, I don't think anything has been common and there's nothing's ever really been the same. But the sort of the idea behind working with friends was that they were the carers for their friend and they needed support. They didn't want anyone else to help them look after them they wanted to do it but they also realized and acknowledged that in order to do that they needed support so it was about caring for the carers really mm-hmm. and um, it was really beautiful really really beautiful 
And I think that is just another huge strength of the book is that it opens up people's eyes to so many possibilities that you would never have even considered. Um, so it is such a it's such a good educational tool. And I can't remember if I said this already, but it, even though it, it's it's difficult to confront those things, if you particularly if you've come from a background where death has been kind of put behind this this shield or neck curtains as you say Louise then um it's it's difficult but also equally comforting at the same time to to just have to know uh, these different ranges of experience I think armed with information in any situation you feel empowered you feel a bit more in control and we wanted to try to give people back a bit of control so they could make decisions and choices and know that there were things out there for them. Mm. Yeah. And they, the, you have um, the, the threads running through the book of the five things and also um, the unsaid, the hashtag unsaid, which is, I think that was some of the most emotionally triggering things for me to read um this idea that you know people are are writing down the things they wish that they had said to people um did that did those ideas come from the festival is that where those things were born yes so unsaid um started its life at Sutton House um there was an amazing staircase that um, went up three floors of the Tudor house and we took it over and left blank postcards at the bottom of the stairs and encouraged people to write their words and then tie them onto the staircase and it was all just came from the work that we have both done and listening to people talking about their regrets and sharing their unsaid words and realizing that actually holding on to those words is a really heavy burden and there's something about writing them down and letting them go out into the universe and sharing them with everyone um, that is really powerful and I think in all of this it's just really honed my feeling of wanting to try and make sure that I don't have a, a long list of, of unsaid things to to people that you that you hold um that you hold close and of course you can't always say everything um well, or do can't. everything but there's there's also this sort of I think a fallacy that has been perpetuated by the media and by film and tv that you know people have these very very profound moments on their deathbeds just before they die and actually that doesn't happen very often because often people lose consciousness a long time before they die. Um, so, you know, we have this expectation that someone will open their eyes and say, I love you more than anything in the world. And I'm so sorry for this. And I'm so grateful for that. And actually it, it more often than not doesn't happen. And so it feels so important that we sort of, you know, challenge that notion that it can happen and get people having those conversations now rather than, you know, waiting until it's too late. Yeah. And one thing that I I find difficult in, in that, which I totally agree, and I will definitely try to live my life by that. But for example, if you're dealing with people maybe in your family um, that just maybe don't share that view I mean I've, I've really seriously considered giving your book to my parents for example but I just 
I just don't know if they could handle it. <laughs> Basically, I, I and I want to talk to them about this, but I'm not sure how to start. Um, and I know that must be a very common concern. Um, what would you say to to someone who might be feeling the same way as me about that? I'm in a similar situation, actually. My parents have ordered the book on Amazon uh, because they are so thrilled that their daughter has written a book. But I'm quite worried about when they actually read it because it's going to be really heavy emotional content for them. And they are not people who in the past have had conversations about difficult things. Um, So I think it's going to be really interesting to see whether they actually read the book or they get sort of two pages in and then decide that... um, maybe they'll just put it to the side and pretend they've read it. Um, But what I have found is that there are easy ways into having those conversations. And one of the best ones is just asking someone about their funeral music. Um, And you can have a really lighthearted discussion about the songs that you would and wouldn't want to be played at your funeral. And it's a good way into having a much deeper conversation, I found. And most people are okay about talking about their funeral music. I also think if you talk about it, if you frame the conversation in something that you need, you know, I need to talk about this. This is something that I want to talk about, as opposed to I think you as my parents should be talking about this, because I think people are much more open if it comes from you. And also, you know, I think we, we protect people from it too much. I mean, the worst that you could do is give them the book and they didn't open it or they read a couple of pages and they thought, actually, this isn't for me. And then you could have a conversation about why it wasn't for them and maybe that would open up the conversation. But I think we are so inherently frightened of it. And if we allow ourselves not to do things that we want to do, we kind of perpetuate that fear. And maybe you talking about your fear with them about death, as you did with us in the beginning, is a is a really good opener. Mm. Yeah, I'm certainly I'm certainly going to try because I do think it's really important for all of us. Um, Yeah, because I just I don't want to now that I do feel uh, more informed um, and it has really given me all of these things to to consider and think about I don't want to just not act on it I want to actually make uh, the death of anyone in my family anyone close to me I want I feel as though I can be better prepared for it and actually um yeah like you said you never really understand unless you know you're the person going through any situation but I think it has made me feel much less afraid um and I think I hope I'm sure that's probably the the aim of 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 the book and it no it's really lovely to know and it's really really gratifying to know the other the other thing I think that is really important to think about when you think about talking to people about it is you can't make people want to you can't make people open up all you can do is sort of let it be known that you're happy to talk about it that it is a conversation that you'd like to have but you can't make anyone talk about it if they don't want to if they're not ready to 
Yeah. I mean, I, I feel as though I could, I don't want to end this conversation because I, I, I just, yeah, I feel so grateful for having this time and even just being able to read that book and that's even, you know, came up on my radar of my life because I know that it will have really made a huge positive change for me and hopefully my family. So thank you so, so much for the work that you, that you're both doing. I think it's incredibly important and, um, yeah I've I've already know that there are lots of people in my circle that are very excited to to hear this interview and to and to read your book when it's because I think it's coming out next month so not long to wait March the 18th 18th. brilliant well um thank you so so much for your time both of you and having us would this the best thank you so much you're very welcome is the best place to connect with you through your website or your Instagram yeah both of those okay okay well I'll make sure to include the links to your your pages at the at the end of the in the show notes so thank you so much thank you so much thank you for having us